Welcome to Adapt Peace Building. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Adapt Peace Building podcast. My name is Stephen Gray, and I'm excited to bring you today a conversation with a leading thinker and doer in the world of peace building. Steve Killalay is the founder of the Institute for Economics and Peace, as well as the Global Peace Index. His new book is Peace in the Age of Chaos, which we discuss today in some detail, including why the concept of peacefulness is important to everybody, no matter which country we live in. We talk about some of the dramatic changes that are taking place in the global peace rankings currently. And we talk about some of the concepts in Steve's book, including systems thinking and its combination with various factors of positive peace, and what that offers us in terms of better strategies for peace building at a time of unprecedented global change. It was a fascinating conversation with a leading thinker and doer in peace building over the last few decades, and I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. Welcome, Steve, and welcome everybody that's listening. I think, you know, what's been great about Steve's contribution is he's brought a new language and a new impetus around peace building and thinking about how we focus on the factors that make our societies healthier, not just about studying conflict and trying to solve problems. So it's really great to have, you know, a thinker like Steve with us and a doer with an interesting background. So, Steve, I wondered if we could just start off, if you could give our listeners a bit of a sense of, you know, what has this journey been like for you? What have you been been involved in? And, you know, how would you describe your, your brief bio? Okay, well, thanks, Stephen. I guess when I look at myself, I'm a serial entrepreneur, so it's my background. I started off actually as a computer programmer. In those days, I used to be really quite a shy, retiring guy and like nothing more than spending 12 hours on a keyboard coding. So from that, I developed uh, two computer programs. Uh, The first one, I ended up developing a company which ended up eventually uh, publicly listed on NASDAQ. And the second one, uh, Integrated Research, ended up listed on the Australian Stock Exchange. So over that period of time, I moved from, I guess, being a, a recluse, a very quiet uh, programming type, you know, a typical technical nerd, to be sort of, a, I guess, an entrepreneur, someone who's a lot more outgoing. So that was great experience. I can't tell you how much I've grown, but the, the companies I launched were all global in nature. So literally from about the age of, I guess, 29 onwards, literally been just traveling the world. So minimum has been six around the world trips a year in that period of time. So I've done a lot. So it made up quite a bit of money out of it all. So I set up a family foundation to work well, focused on developmental aid. So I was really looking at working with the poorest of the poor. And the aim was to do interventions then, which would be substantially life-changing. So seeing we're doing that, a lot of the poorest countries in the world were conflict countries or near post-conflict countries. So I spent a lot of time traveling through these kind of environments. And I guess that's what got me interested in peace. But the Charitable Foundation, which is the name of the Family Foundation, it's now been, gee, we've probably been at it maybe 30 years. It's a long while, isn't it, Stephen? That's a long while. So about 30 years. And in that time, I think we spent about oh, maybe 70, 80 million, something like that. And the direct beneficiaries out of that now are about 3.7 million people. And so that's a lot of people. 
And what really struck me in the developing world, how far the money goes. So to give you an idea, like if you want to keep someone alive uh, in a poverty or starvation situation, let's say like in Yemen at the moment, it's literally about 30 cents a day. And generally, quite often, you've just got to keep them alive till the drought finishes or the conflict moves on. And so really for small amounts of money in these disaster situations, you can change people's life. So we've done a lot of water projects in different parts of the world. And on average, it's about $20 a head to give someone clean water. And when you put in the clean water, a lot of the time the disease can just drop by 30% because most of it's just waterborne. First project we ever did in that area was actually in Laos. And we were in there while the country was still closed. There was just no Westerners in. There was literally had one of the highest child mortality rates in the world, about 18%. This is going back about 30 years. We go into villages and we just put in uh, pumps to get the water out. And we literally dropped child mortality rate from 18% down to 12% and got rid of 30% of all the disease because it was waterborne. That was probably the first project I've ever done. And after that, I was hooked. I could just see the bang for the buck. And it really does have tremendous changes on life. But moving from that sort of took me to a lot of places like, as I mentioned earlier on, war zones, near post-war zones, because that's where a lot of the really poor are. And then I was in northeast Kabul, if anyone knows that area, in the DRC. So it's one of the more violent places in the world. So walking from there, and I wondered, what are the most peaceful nations in the world? Was there anything which I could learn from them to pull into the projects I was doing in the developing world? And it was a bit of a fancy question, to be honest. It was just, you know, how you get these questions and then you go away and you do a search on the internet to get an answer. Search the internet and couldn't find a list of the nations of the world by their peacefulness. I thought, wow, that's amazing. So from there, I then sort of decided to do the Global Peace Index. And it was, I guess, just a bit of a, how can I put it? It was a one-off project. I really didn't think I was going to build a peace institute around it. And that's an entrepreneurial story in itself, which I guess we could explore later. And so I went out and had a friend then who uh, used to run the Economist Intelligence Unit in London, which is part of the Economist Group. He says they're good at indexes, so developed the methodology, got a bunch of experts together to sort of tell us what sort of indicators we could use, went around to six or seven of the major peace institutions in the world. They all thought it was a good idea. So I developed it and then sort of, going and as we're getting the results coming through, I'm thinking this is interesting, but gee, I should really let people know about it. So at that stage, I hired a PR company and PR company with a global launch on it and got over a billion media impressions in the first year. And I thought, wow, this is amazing. And what really struck me, like this is quite profound and a lot of the book cascades out from this concept, but if you can take a simple businessman like myself, I can be walking through Africa and I wonder, what are the most peaceful nations in the world and hasn't been done? Then how much do we know about peace? If you can't measure something, can you truly understand it? And if you can't measure it, how do you even know whether your actions are helping you or hindering you in achieving your goals? You don't. And I think the next major thing which struck me is we don't, most of the peace institutions and most of the study of peace isn't actually the study of peace. It's the study of how to stop conflict. And peace and conflict, as it turns out, are really, in many ways, 
quite different subjects, although they may seem like two opposite sides of the same coin. So I'll give, just give a quick analogy. So think of health, great breakthroughs in pathology. We look at it today and none of us are probably going to die of a heart attack young. We're even curing cancers now. So there's great breakthroughs in studying pathology. But to understand how to have a healthy, active and fruitful life, you've got to study people who are healthy, haven't you? So you learn from that right diet, good mental disposition, plenty of exercise. You're not going to learn any of that through studying someone on their deathbed. And peace is pretty much the same with conflict. What it takes to keep a society resilient and strong is very, very different than what you need to stop the conflict. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Steve. You know, as, as someone like many of us that have come up being trained in, in peace building and, and related methodologies and subjects, you learn a lot about how to understand conflict. You know, these methods of conflict analysis that mean that when you go into a country where there's violence, you do a conflict analysis, you want to understand what are the root causes of this conflict, what are the conflict drivers, and from there you develop a program and that program is designed to fix that problem. And, you know, that makes sense because violence is obvious. It's clearly bad and you want to stop it. But what it masks is that there's actually all of these capacities of a society that sustain health and help to protect against conflict. You know, and this is that concept of resilience. And if you just have this narrow focus on trying to fix a problem, you miss this longer term need to actually proactively work on having a healthy society. So, you know, that's one of the concepts that comes through really clearly in the book. And it is a fantastic book. I fully recommend it. So you're talking about this concept of, of positive peace, you know, and some people might relate that back to Galtung or others that have talked about positive peace and negative peace, but you take it a step further, which is really useful, and that you bring in these different factors that are related to positive peace. And you talk about, you know, looking at a nation state, or I guess you can use, you know, communities or different kind of levels, but you talk about how we need those factors in order to, you know, use this phrase, which I love, you know, create the conditions in which human potential can flourish. And I wondered if you might just talk to us about what are those factors and how did you arrive at them through the, the type of research that you've been doing? Yeah, well, if we look at it, uh, positive peace, as you mentioned, uh, originated with Johann Galton. And it was the, the concepts, of, it was more of moral concepts about what created a society flourish. And sort of a lot of it was about equality, a lot of it was about social justice and stuff like that. But the concept itself is a great concept, really is. And the work which uh, Johann did was groundbreaking in its time. So we decided to pick up on the words because it was something which was well known and it was sort of in the expressed, I guess, in the area where we're trying to go. And so what we did is seeing we had the Global Peace Index and it covers about 99.7% of the world's population. And we built up a whole lot of data sets down here. So we've got about all oh, 50,000 different data sets, but it's roughly like 25,000 were good enough to use in this kind of study. So what we did was then took those data sets and then used mathematical modelling and statistical analysis to understand the qualities which were most highly associated with peaceful societies, in other words, the ones with the most statistical significance. And then we used 
further mathematical techniques to clump them together. So you could see how this sort of clustered, if you like. And now out of that, we were able to build this eight-part topology, which we call positive peace, or the eight pillars of positive peace. That in itself was just a great breakthrough, a great breakthrough. But what really made this useful, really useful, is we turned that background into another index, and that's now called a positive peace index. Now, the profound thing about that is what seeing you've got that index now, we can now do statistical analysis with that to see if it's associated with a whole lot of other things we think are important. So as you do the statistical analysis, you find that positive peace is statistically associated with the better performance of measures of economics like GDP. So for example, countries which are high in positive peace compared to countries which are low in positive peace have about 2% per annum higher GDP growth rates. And like that is really quite profound. I mean, you take that out over 50 years and that's a big difference. You also measures of well-being and happiness, they correlate really well. Performances on measures of ecology, they go really, really well. And other measures of inclusion as well. And that's how we came about describing this positive piece as creating an optimal environment for human potential to flourish. And that, I think, is what really quite a profound outcome. And you probably could have got it starting from other places as well, but we happen to start with peace. And so if you think about it, the environment which creates for peace is just the same environment which creates for all these other things. So we come down now and we start to look positive peace. And the way we've defined it is this eight-part topology or the pillars of positive peace. So the things like well-functioning government, strong business environment, equal distribution of resources, free flow of information, acceptance of the rights of others, low levels of corruption, high levels of human capital. And so that gives you an idea of the different way they come together. But what's key in all this, and this I think it's really profound, is that we live in a world where we're trying to look for cause and effect. And there's very, very good philosophical reasons why. And so if you think of most governments, they get a problem, they try and look for the cause, fix the cause, they fix the problem. But systems don't operate that way. So let's think of a free flow of information. Does a free press create for a well-functioning government? Or does a well-functioning government create for a free press? Now let's combine corruption in it. Does a well-functioning government create for a better corruption environment? Or does the corruption influence the government? And does the free flow of information affect corruption? Or does corruption affect the free flow of information? You can't pull them apart. What you can say is they all operate together as a system and moving in a virtuous cycle or a vicious cycle. So virtual cycles where everything's slowly getting better, vicious cycles when it's not. So these eight pillars all interact together and uh, operate as a system. And so there's a whole lot of fundamentals in systems thinking. And just one of the simple one things is if you look at systems and you take the individual parts and take the sum of the parts, the system is more than the sum of the parts. And that's very, very different than when you're looking at a causal effect because you can break things down to their smaller and smaller parts to better understand them. 
we're starting to look at all that, we now start to look at the development of society from really quite a different angle. And so you can take these pillars of positive peace and can apply them macro level, how to run a society, but we've even applied them really successfully down in developmental aid. Because as I mentioned earlier, I've got a lot of experience there. So I thought, well, how do you do it? Down, let's say, putting it into a school in Uganda. And so we've got some great examples just of that. It's really useful, Steve. I can hear some of our, our listeners in the back of their heads on this question of causation and looking at eight factors of positive peace and saying, well, you've got correlation there, but what's the causal logic? How do they relate to each other? And you know, one way out of it is, well, goodness gracious, at the level of the nation state, there are so many complex interdependencies that how are you ever going to say, you know, we need A before we can have B or the combination of A plus B plus C means you might get F, you know, because there's so many factors that are they're working as part of those systems, like systems of government or systems of rights, that it's really impossible to try and delineate that without doing a you know, real injustice to reality. And a lot of the systems mapping that people do, it's really predicated on this idea of trying to understand what was a sequence of events that happened and what were the cause and effects and you know, how does that come together in loops vicious and virtuous cycles? How does it come together in other types of loops? And, you know, that can get you to an interesting place. And I'll give you one example. So we've been working in in the north of Myanmar for about six, seven years now using systems approaches. And one example always sticks with me and there's a very big drug abuse problem in a lot of Myanmar, a lot of that region, as, as you know. And you have a lot of kids, really young people that are hooked on on drugs. And you know what we found when we did mapping and we talked to hundreds of people or, or the participants did, and they started mapping this data, what they found were these really common patterns around drug abuse was that you know when people were getting hooked on drugs, they were getting locked up. That was the approach, was to put them in prison. And the problem with the prison system there, as in many other places in the world, is that you could get a lot of drugs in prison. And not only did they, you know, remain hooked on drugs while they were in prison, but they picked up a lot of other bad habits that they came out being in a worse situation. And when they came out, the society was rejecting them. It was saying, we don't want drug addicts in our society. And so the rates of recidivism and of maintaining addiction, just people weren't getting off drugs once they got back on. And obviously, it's more complicated than that. You know, but what this enabled was that this community could say, look, we need to do something about how we treat drug users and how we welcome them back into the community and try and integrate them. And we need to do something about our prisons. When they started with that sense of, of that causality, it's not a magic bullet. You know, some of those things work better than others, and there's a lot of trial and error, but it gave them a starting point. And I guess, you know, one of the questions that I was left with in reading the book is. It's one thing for us to see or understand systemically, but then the big leap of faith and leap of effort is how do we work with systems? And you know, you, you mentioned three strategies, which are fascinating, which is one was about, well, we need to work on all these factors at the same time. 
Another one was, you know, let's go deep on one of the factors, like in, in Nepal, and you see a ripple effect across the others. Another was to do that, you know, at a smaller scale, like in a community, work on the different factors. And I just wondered if you could talk about, you know, what do we do next after we have a better systems understanding? Sure. So I think everyone understands systems basically, but when you get into it deeper, it's very, very hard to change our mindset to work with systems. So if we're looking at systems, the way to really understand them, if we look, we draw a lot from biological systems, okay, because human beings are a biological system, and from that, from extension, so are our societies. Physical systems, which a lot of the complex and chaos theory comes into, operate somewhat differently. And the big difference, if you like, is the concept of encoded norms. Now, so you've got these feedback loops. And the second thing is intent, okay? A physical system doesn't have intent, whereas any biological system does have intent, and by that, so do our societies and such. So if you're looking at the macro level, because it's different if you're looking at the micro level, but at the macro level, the way to start of it is really to start with as much information as you can on different factors of society. So what we'd do is we'd start looking at all the various uh, developmental indicators that you like, a lot of economic ones, a lot of social ones. And then you look at the, how they're progressing over time and you'll find some of them are improving, some of them are deteriorating. So the ones which are improving, you probably need to keep similar sort of momentum up. And the ones which are deteriorating is where you can now start to have your focus. And so that now starts to build up a bit of a mud map. But all systems are path dependent. They're moving along a path. It's a bit like your path. You're sitting there in New Zealand at the moment, safe from COVID, unlike most of your listeners, I'm afraid. So you're there, you're married, you've got a couple of kids, and sort of you've got this path your life's moving along. Radically change it, and you're radically likely to break the system, like in this case we'll see it as your emotional happiness. So countries are no different. A lot of the time we can see it, outside agencies come in, other governments, I mean, and they try and fix something which is somewhat broken and they wreck it. Look at Iraq or look at Syria. They're classic examples of it. Bad, ruthless regimes, but what's come after them is much, much worse because we went for radical change. So the concept with systems thinking is so if you're path dependent, how do you nudge the path in the direction you want to go? So the idea is a whole lot of small different interventions, many of them nudging a system in the direction you want it to go. And what that tends to do is cause the system to change. If any one of them doesn't really work or is a failure, it doesn't actually really affect the overall system. And then you use, let's say, the eight pillars of positive pieces, the lenses to look at what are the areas you wish to change and structure. So that'd be sort of the way we'd we'd think about going at a societal level. If you're coming down then and you're looking at, a, 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 let's say, an aid project, it, it's somewhat different. But we might come back to that in a few minutes if that's where you'd like to take the conversation. But what I thought I'd do now is just talk a little bit about how profoundly different thinking about systems is about the way we think about it. So if we think about empirical philosophy, okay, and we look at it, that has made the modern age, okay, and empirical philosophy started around about the 14th century and then sort of developed over the next three or 400 years. And it was based around trying to understand the physical world. And in physics, the cause 
is separated from the effect. And it's always the same. Now, also built within us at a very, very deep level is just this understanding of cause and effect. That's how we can catch a ball. In fact, that's how we can walk, okay, because there's a physics and everything's repeatable and always will work the same, cause and effect. So it's built deep into our subconscious, the understanding of this. And we live in a linear time system as well. So things seem to have this beginning, middle and end, okay, a bit like a story. So one of the other things with empiric philosophy is that you can take things in the physical world and break them down into smaller and smaller and smaller components to understand them. And so it really gets down and it's back to this concept that the whole is more than the sum of the parts. If you break it down, you're never going to be able to actually really understand the whole. You'll understand the mechanisms of why something small works, but not the whole. So now systems don't really work like that. And so now as we look into systems, the first thing is we have intent, okay? Intent can change the outcome. Similarly, you've got these feedback loops. So you've got the cause, you've got the effect, and then the effect will go back and alter the cause, okay? And then you've also got this concept of encoded norms within a system. And the system's always trying to keep a balanced state. It's trying to keep homeostasis if you like. What happens is you have these encoded norms. So you get an input into the system. Uh, is it within a certain range? Yes, it is. Okay, well, we won't throw it away, won't do anything with it. It's outside a range, then we've got to readjust the system. So what we'll attempt to do is go back and put in an interaction to stop the input being what is. Now, think of COVID-19, which we live in at the moment. Look how radically the system's attempted to change to try and adapt with this input to try and bring it back with acceptable bounds. Now, if it's within acceptable bounds, the health system would just keep motoring on. And if COVID-19 had been such that only one in a million people had caused it or one in 100,000 people got caused by it, medical system probably wouldn't have changed. We'd still have international flights and all the other restrictions wouldn't be there. So that's, that's one example. You can think of it in many other ways too. Crime. Crime gets out of control. You watch this now put more police on, maybe strengthen presence. If you're more enlightened, you'll start to look at more of the underlying causes. And that's a bit back to your stories of drug addiction. So so I spent you look, I spent a lot of time in Myanmar too. Lovely place. It's one of one of the places in the world I love the most. Probably the most underrated place to visit in the world's Pagan. See, you'd know it, Steve, but it's a plain with three and a half thousand temples on it dating back 800 years, some of them 10 stories high. It's just a magical place and no one there, almost no one there. But anyway, back to this concept of systems. So we'll come back and we'll look at, let's say, your example of the drug, drug users. So if you look at it, so one way of looking at it is why do people take excessive drugs and ruin their lives like we all like drugs a lot of most of us drink alcohol don't we yes we like to get a little bit high let's say but most of us don't drink it in excess so it stops us going to work or interfering with other levels and why is that because we've got this correction mechanism within us so something is interfering with the things in our life which really matter or the side effects of it the physical effects or let's say drinking too much alcohol or taking too much drugs self-corrects us. 
but if you've got nothing really to live for in life, okay, you've got nothing which turns you on, which you want to get up to go and work to do, then one of those impetus to take drugs is gone. So that, just as a basic philosophy, let's say, moves us out somewhere else. Now we're looking at the system. So what is the employment prospects for these young kids? If they haven't got any employment prospects and they're sitting around idly, what are they going to do? Then you look at, as you mentioned earlier on, the legal and justice system. And as you're describing what's happening in the northern ends of Myanmar, it's not much difference what's happening in Washington, Sydney or Auckland. We treat it as a problem. We punish the people in the hope that that'll stop people taking more. But it hasn't. Been at this for ages now. Like war on drugs started in the 60s. Here we are 60 years later and more people are taking drugs now than in the 60s. So there's other reasons as to why they take, and this can come back the whole environment. How do you create an environment in which people can flourish? And that is systemic. It's far, far bigger than just saying, looking at cause and effect, here's the drugs, punish people, they'll stop taking it. So, Steve, yeah, I think there's a lot of you know, philosophers in the audience that would keep us talking about cause and effect for a long time, but I'll just say that I, I agree with that. There's certainly a lot going on. And I think it's really interesting, this idea of the conditions which enable things to flourish. You made a point back a little bit about trying a lot of different smaller things, you know, and seeing what works. And it just occurs to me that you have a a rich history in the private sector as an entrepreneur. And this is something that the private sector does a lot better, is to try things, learn from them quickly, test the market, prototype, you know, fail safe, fail smart, these are all private sector concepts, but the idea of failing, for example, in a conflict context or any kind of development context, you know, you're going to get laughed out the door. And even experimentation or admitting that you don't know how to do something is there are powerful incentives against that because you're supposed to say to people that fund your work, look, I've got it figured out. We know how these things happen. I've, I know the root causes, so we're going to do this. And, you know, I just... You know, as a philanthropist and someone that's been working in this world for a long time now, do you have any reflections on on how you know the development sector can actually you know work with complexity and systems in that way in terms of trying things, scaling them up, being prepared to take risks? Yeah, I think in a lot of ways there's a lot of the innovation in the NGO sector. I do think it's there, but I think it comes more out of the smaller. NGOs than necessarily the really big ones because the big ones are very, very focused on their public profile. Also, I find this just funding projects very, very hard to really find out what's failing. We've got our own auditors which go in and look over it and find these things out. And a lot of the time too, from a Western perspective, the aid organisations are driven by what their funders want to see in projects as well. And that doesn't necessarily correspond with what's on the ground. In fact, some of the things actually will be negative for what you want to do on the ground. So look, I think there's a whole lot of series of stuff. So I think just one short description doesn't actually capture it. It's too nuanced. But one of the things I would say, certainly when you're looking at the private sector, it's highly competitive. Competitiveness in the NGO sector is a real negative, a real negative. And yet will drive innovation and differentiation. But on the other hand, if you're, you're all trying to feed the poor and you're all fighting over this 
same thing and going into the same area. There's just so much other which is missing. So looking at where other NGOs are working and then trying to find complementary areas quite often can make really good sense. Whereas it's a business, you'd be looking at where's the biggest slice of the pie, where am I going to get the most recognition, bang, we'll all go after that and one or two will dominate. But with business, one of the things which drives it's the profit motive. And in the NGO circles, a lot of times this is seen as really negative. But from another perspective, it's not, because that's what drives the efficiency and the creativity. And to many extents, if we look at many of the breakthroughs we've got, uh, even look at the conferencing we're doing now. This has all come out of the breakthroughs, out of inventions, which have come out of business. So business has a really key part to play. So I think in some ways, and I do get frustrated. I'm used to a pretty competitive environments and fairly demanding environments as well, where people sort of work long hours. And you don't get quite the same effort out of the NGOs because it's more about balanced lifestyle rather than to be driven by a passion to achieve maximum results. So, yeah, the sectors attract different sorts of people with different types of motivation and the outcomes and the way they work and cooperate, you do want to be somewhat different. And it's a long answer and without too much clarity, Stephen, but, yeah, that, that's my thoughts. You know, it feels like one of the next steps for people like myself and many others that share this view that we need to work in a systemic way is that we kind of need to go into that and then think about what does cooperation actually look like to deliver on that kind of systemic change. And you know, as you wrote the book, you speak about cooperation and there's this interesting bringing of positive peace and peacefulness into integration with a lot of the other challenges that we're facing now, climate change, obviously, pandemics are a hot topic right now, migration, inequality, you know, there's these global challenges that are really going to be significant for our, even some say our survival as a species in coming years. And you make the point that if we don't have peace, how can we cooperate to work on, on these bigger issues? And that's a very important idea the inverse is also a, an interesting question, is if we can't cooperate, how can we actually be peaceful? And if you look at just the pandemic again, you know, we haven't had the best year of international cooperation. And, and even within some societies, I mean, obviously New Zealand has done all right. We've been pretty cohesive, but a lot of countries have been crippled by this polarization in which they can't actually cooperate amongst themselves. And so what do you think we might get towards in terms of being able to work on different factors of peacefulness together in order to create those conditions to flourish? It's not a particularly easy question for you, Steve, but I wonder if you had any thoughts. Oh, it's a very simple. No, not really. Uh, so I think probably, gee, the first place to start on it is like we're never going to have a world which is totally peaceful. The structure of just living life on this planet is interesting. So if you look at it, all creatures eat other living creatures to survive. What's more violent than that? And that's the context of the reality we're captured in. Look, our sun and our solar system is the third generation solar system or solar sun. 
two others have exploded, okay? We're all made up of the stardust of those exploding systems. What's more violent than imagining the sun erupting and our your solar system disappearing? So this concept of violence and renewal, it's built into it. And certainly, probably the Indians have got some of the best philosophies on it. Some of the ancient Greeks had good stuff too. It's like Phoenix rising out of the ashes. Revitalization comes from destruction. So now none of us want to be destroyed, that's for sure. But can we look at the revitalization in some other way, some other context or something else? But let's come back to peace. So peace is a relative concept. So just put in some philosophical points there, which mean that the world will never actually really be fully peaceful. But it's a bit like nudging the system and the path dependency, like we're in a world where it is now. How can we make it slightly more peaceful? How can we do what we can to improve it? And without thinking that we're going to end up with the world which is free of violence, free of the negative competition, because there's a lot about competition, which is great. It's just not going to happen. But what I do postulise and sort of bring this across in the book, particularly with a couple of the uh, real-life examples from when I've been in the developing world, that unless we can have a world which is basically peaceful, we'll never get the levels of trust, cooperation or inclusive necessary to solve these problems. Therefore, peace is a prerequisite for the survival of society as we know it in the 21st century. And that, in many ways, is different than any other epoch in human history. In the past, peace could have been the main, was the domain of the altruistic, but in the 21st century, it's literally in everyone's self-interest, and that is different than any other age. Just look at COVID-19. Uh, we know that most of the major nations in the world have been developing biological weapons. You can see the impact a good biological weapon would have on humanity, as is nuclear bombs. So we can wipe out humanity very easily with a decent nuclear war. And if we've got the ability to be able to really think that we've got the intelligence not to have a war, I don't think that's right. It's a group called Global Zero. Um, they've done some great work on trying to eliminate or get agreements to be able to reduce the number of nuclear weapons. And they've got a great documentary, I think it's called Global Zero, which they put out about five years ago, which looks at the false positives which have had on nuclear attacks in Russia, which have had in the US, the number of times US presidents have lost the nuclear launch codes because they carry them around on them 24 hours a day. There's one example where one time in the US, sort of they've got this big command center, okay, and suddenly it's lit up like a Christmas tree with all these rockets shooting out of Russia. So you've got 20 minutes from the time the launch is made from Russia for the interballistic missile to hit the US and vice versa. So in that time, you've got to determine whether you've got a false positive. You've got to now put it up your chain of demand. You've got to get it to the president. You've got three minutes, I think it is, to give him a briefing, and then he's got two minutes to make a decision. It's lightning speed. So anyway, the control panels lit up like a Christmas tree. Everyone's running around mad. Then a guy in a back room can hear the commotion. Then he's realised what he's done is taken a floppy disk with a training exercise, put it into the wrong computer. 
Oh my gosh. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, okay. So we, we, we are quite capable of destroying ourselves. There's two simple examples without getting anything more profound, like okay, run a great greenhouse gases or something like that. So we do need a much more peaceful world. And it's really up to everyone who's listening to this podcast to see it and do what they can. And it's difficult. It really is difficult. You know, it feels surprising that we're even here when you hear things like that. And also another argument that you make in the book, which people like Silla Alworthy made really well as well, which is about, you know, the economic cost of war, how much we spend on this. You know, I think there's a figure in the book of 600 billion in 2018 was a global expenditure on war and the cost spent on peace is about 7 billion. You know, so if we're spending that much to design better ways to kill each other and not as much on preventing it, it, it makes you feel lucky to even be around. Um, but we're coming towards the end of our time, Steve. So now we like to finish with a bit of a call to action for people. Uh, you've set forth a, a really profound vision and some new ideas and peace in the age of chaos. It's a book that I, I really do recommend to our listeners. And, you know, you're speaking to some people and some organizations that that really have made this the vocation. What suggestions or requests would you make to them to start to take some of these ideas forward in the coming years? So I think the first one of the things we haven't really covered, and you just touched on it then, was the economic cost of violence to the global economy, or the flip side of it, the economic value of peace. So on our calculations, the, the economic value of peace for 2019 was about $14 trillion. So that's a bit over 10% of the global GDP. And we've only counting what we can count. We estimate it's probably 50, could even be 100% higher than that. So I think one of the profound changes since we've been working on peace is that well, it used to be that uh, war was good for business, okay? You used to hear that everywhere. You don't hear that anymore. So most business people now get that peace is better for business than war. I've given presentations now, groups like the International Chamber of Commerce, a lot of top global CFO conferences and things like that on the economic value of peace, and everyone gets it. So I think in terms of working with the uh, leaders, should start to put what we see is highly moral things and start to put it into economic terms. It's a lens which they can better understand. So if they think that they're going to get better economic outcomes through peace, it's one way looking at and hopefully restructuring the way that society thinks. Because in many ways, money is the thing which seems to fuel the way the world goes around. And we do need a lot better uh, understanding of sort of the people who are disaffected. And sort of if we're looking in the current age at the moment, uh, it's a lot of focus on minorities, and quite rightly so. But the people who are really disaffected are the ones without education. So if you look, and this is different than 60 years ago, you could have started on a factory floor and you could have ended up CEO of a large multinational company. That doesn't happen anymore unless you've got two or three degrees, you don't go anywhere. So as we start to now look at, let's say, the working class or lower middle class, we find that their working conditions have actually been eroding over the last 20 years. COVID-19 is only going to fuel charge and turbocharge that. 
So there's a focus, I think, on sort of looking at the ones we don't hear about in society, okay? And a lot of the time, that it's your average worker. And sort of what happens is, in US is a classic example of this, what happens is anger gets displaced. So you've got a whole lot of things in your life are worrying you, which troubling you, and like you just get this anger built up. And then if someone can take it and channel it somewhere in a direction, people just tend to jump on it. You see it all around the world. So what one of the things we've seen over the last decade, we look at the riots and demonstrations and general strikes, they've risen. So if we're looking at demonstrations, they're up 246% in the last decade. That's only going to increase with COVID-19. So the real struggle for peace, and this is within the West, okay? This is not out in the outer bounds of Africa. This is within the West. We need to come back and we need to look at revitalising our system. So there's a number of different key indicators which we've been deteriorating on now over the last decade. So one of them is this concept of equity, if you like, around social justice, around wages, working conditions. Find concepts like the fractionalisation of elites. That's where the elites within a society fight more and more. And Brit Exit's a great example of it. You can see it, let's see, in the US with the Trump effect. So that's another area which you're seeing misinformation. That's on the rise. Perceptions of corruption, I'll say perceptions because it's very hard to really measure. But perceptions of corruption, they're on the increase as well within the West. This all comes together. And also sort of just lack of the uh, group grievances, they're on the rise as well. And these are the kind of things we need to really start to look at and try and come back and understand the underlying, it's going to use the word causes. See, there we go again. We need to understand these underlying issues and work out multi-thronged approaches to trying to be able to solve them. And so I think there's a real, yeah, real need to look at that. I think the press also, we're looking at over the last decade, is we find social media cutting into its space more and more and the economic models becoming less viable. They're focusing more on the, and this is both the left and the right, focusing on more on sort of how, how can I put it, they're getting more hysterical in their content. They're tending to go for information which is more uh, sensationalised. And this then has the effect also because you get true believers on one side, true believers on the other side, just few because People are selective on their news, getting more selective these days with algorithms in Facebook, Google and such, end up getting more alienated. So if we look in the US, for example, what we find is this shrinking number of people in the middle. The number of Democrats and the number of uh, Republicans who think the other side is dangerous for the country has gone up threefold in the last 15 years. And so... These are the kind of things we need to reverse. So where's the middle ground? Where are the things which people have in common? So we focus on the differences and really, really magnify the differences. But what do they have in common? Get them to work for common ground. That's one of the things I could say about positive pieces and architecture because we're looking at the system. So cause and effect, okay? Here's the effect. Let's go back to the cause, okay? So who caused the problem? Now, you find there's a whole lot of individuals there who go, whoa, I'm not the problem. Now you're off into another fight. So positive peace, peace, system, systems dependent, path dependency, 
you've come down the path, you're trying to restructure the going forward. So you tend to look at the solutions going forward rather than back at the past. And because the past quite often create recriminations. Thanks, Steve. I mean, that's a good way to end. And that, that really brings home to me when we talk about divisions in societies, what's happening in the West or the global North, just not the global South. This idea of peace isn't something that we just think about in exotic places, you know, the so-called developing world and fragile countries. This is something really that concerns all of us. And I think that's an important message for the future. So thank you very much for your time and for sharing with our audience. Uh, the book is Peace in the Age of Chaos. I believe it's available from Amazon and all the other places you'd buy books, and I really recommend it. So thanks very much, Steve, for your time. Thank you. Look, it's been my pleasure talking. Visit us at adaptpeacebuilding.org slash blog.